You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Hello and welcome to First Christian. An extra special welcome to those of you who are outsiders, new to First Christian, new to Christianity, or just curious about Jesus. In fact, if you do find yourself an outsider, I want you to know this series is especially for you. If you've got a comment or a question or a suggestion, I'm inviting you to send us an email. You can find our staff email on the website. We welcome you to submit a question or an insight to share with us today, and I'll do my best to get to it. I want to thank you for all the positive feedback from last week's start. If you missed it, you can feel free to go back and listen on YouTube and get caught up. This series, Jesus for Outsiders, is an attempt to present an outsider's view of Jesus. We're using a biography written by an early outsider, a non-Jewish person named Luke. He gathered evidence, other biographies, eyewitness accounts, in order to prepare an ordered reconstruction of Jesus' own life. Our outsider's view has us watching Jesus very closely, watching for how he treats outsiders and how outsiders respond to Jesus. And today, I have the perfect story. Well, I don't know if any story is perfect, Naturally, outsiders are skeptical about Jesus' identity as a hero, or more particularly, his identity as being the Son of God. Some reasonable people doubt the earliest claims that Jesus is the Son of God. And his divinity is something that other religions questions, non-Christians doubt, and even Christians intensely discuss through the centuries. So, since people already doubt that Jesus is God's Son, Why not tell the story of Jesus interacting with the devil? (laughs) Okay, well, it's not maybe the perfect story. A Jesus versus the devil matchup kind of possesses problems as this Super Bowl matchup between good and evil. And many people might think of it as out of touch with reality as a puppy Super Bowl. Why would we care that Jesus was tempted? Jesus could just use his superpowers to escape it like someone playing a video game with all the cheat codes available to them. For Jesus, it's no fair. 21 years ago, uh, NBC launched a cartoon primetime show called God, the Devil, and Bob, where God needs to save the world again, but the condition is that the devil gets to choose who he uses to save the world. And he chooses Bob, a low-life guy. Now, as you imagine, the show made everyone mad. NBC had to pull it after four episodes. For many outsiders, a discussion about God and the devil seems as sincere as maybe tracking cartoon characters that are made up. And I'm not going to give a quick, satisfying answer on the front end, just an invitation to hear the story. Maybe our curiosity about Jesus squaring off against evil will lead us deeper into this story. Luke's biography of Jesus introduces us to John the baptizer, who baptizes Jesus, which means that he put him down in water, a cleansing ritual. And in that moment, the heavens open, and the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well delighted. Uh, Are you still with me? Now, remember, we have no trouble believing 
Marvel superheroes or people flying through the air or the, the latest action on a computer-generated movie, right? But here what's important is that God confirms Jesus' identity as his son. And at least for the readers that are reading the story, they're clear that Jesus is the son of God. And most of these stories about Jesus' life connect his baptism and his temptation. Well, if you look in the table of contents for the Gospel of Luke, it's toward the back side of the Bible. And on my Bible, it's page 62. And that means nothing to you. You can click on it on maybe online and find Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. Now I have to admit, I have to acknowledge that I believe this happened. I have to acknowledge my bias for outsiders. However, I consider that there is room for an outsider to hear this story a bit differently, in maybe a more relatable way. The term devil means accuser, one who's on the attack, someone who's separating or an adversary. So if it's too much to imagine the devil standing there with Jesus, then don't. See this as an encounter, like an inner dialogue between Jesus and the devil, where the devil is speaking into Jesus' mind, an intent to divide him, to separate him from God, to accuse Jesus. Certainly, this could be a penetration of Jesus' thoughts. I'm just saying that it's possible for someone to think this. Now, I invite everyone to stay with me because at this point, both insiders and outsiders are looking at me a little sideways like I'm crazy. I, I can't win. Let's go back to the story. Notice that the phrases, full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil are closely packed together. They connect. Spirit-filled is right there with tempted by the devil. Insiders mistakenly believe that being filled with God means that they're exempt from temptation. To seek God means avoiding something difficult or bad. It's just not true. Jesus was human. And Jesus must have had the human doubts of really being God's child. That's a human reality that all of us face. But God confirms this reality through the Spirit's presence and God's voice of affirmation. What tempts you? Maybe we're tempted by good food or physical pleasures to escape from reality. Maybe we're tempted when people affirm us or offer us money or buy a career. What tempts you to doubt your identity or to doubt your purpose? Here in this story, we're going to see that Jesus' temptations are bread, kingly authority, and a temple leap. Bread because he's hungry, authority because he's supposed to be this kingly ruler, and an amazing deed like jumping from the temple in order to convince others. So let's pick up with the story again in Luke chapter 4, but starting in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. 
And Jesus answered him, It's written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all authority, for it has been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. If you are the Son of God. If is such a big little word. The accuser starts by aiming at the very heart of Jesus' identity. The Son of God could command a stone to become a bread. This is the beginning of a first-class conditional challenge to Jesus' identity. Would he be the Son of God? This is the crux of the temptation ordeal, the divine sonship of Jesus. It's at the heart of what many people question about how Jesus can be God's Son and, and a human being. Jesus' identity and authority are the bullseye. The separator is targeting this little word, if. If could even read since. A lawyer might say, granted, you are the Son of God. When challenged, how do you respond? If you're an accountant, add up these numbers. If you're an athlete, return this volley. If you're a guitar player, play this piece. Consider a time when you were directly questioned or when you felt questioned. Maybe by a verbal slight. Did it prompt you to anger, to dialogue, a need to win? Maybe to build evidence against in your case? Maybe you ignored it? Maybe it hurt you? How did you respond? The devil's direct assault is on Jesus' identity. The bread is simply a means for Jesus to show that he's the Son of God. The temptation here is to satisfy his own desire for food. The temptation is one of desire or gratification. And this challenge makes being the Son of God a condition on the ability to turn this stone into bread. In other words, will Jesus let desire determine how he acts as God's Son? Will Jesus allow his hunger, his physical desires, to make the decisions for him? What's at stake is not just some title, Son of God, but literally how Jesus will be the Son of God. Jesus' response will define what it means to be the Son of God. This dare questions Jesus' identity and forces the Son of God to action. Jesus, however, doesn't answer. He doesn't answer the primary attack on his divinity. 
Remember the setting. He's just come from being baptized and supposedly the voice of God confirmed that he was the son of God. He could have pointed this information out, could have told the devil to just replay the tape, pointed to the witness. But instead, Jesus ignores the question of his identity, ignores the chance to turn stones into bread. But he does answer the question by saying, eating bread does not provide real life. Life is simply more than bread. Now this, of course, is the very first no-carb diet. <laughs> Jesus has fasted for 40 days. Devil's tempting him with some carbs, with some bread, and he's hungry and he's famished. However, what Jesus is pointing to here is not about some diet, but that his sustenance comes from elsewhere. Now let's dwell on that. What we put into our bodies keeps us going. It's food, it's energy. However, Jesus directs our attention away from basic science that we need food to have energy, and he draws his energy from God. Bread isn't life. Life is from God's breath, and we exist by the Spirit of God, the Word of God. And this is why all of Jesus' answers to the accuser come from Scripture. All responses come from what God's people have learned in the wilderness. In fact, those stories, those Old Testament, First Testament stories from the Hebrew scriptures are about the wanderings in the wilderness. And that's what Jesus uses. Now we might, if we were shooting the movie of the wilderness wanderings, use Albuquerque as a set. We could probably find some pretty good desert scenes. Well, God's people in this story were rescued from slavery in Egypt, and then they were homeless in the wilderness. And there was a 40-year period where they were pretty frustrated. They were wandering around. They were without food and water and leadership. They doubt God's ability to provide for them and even the leaders that God has sent them. So Jesus' first answer, humans don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that's in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, is from these wilderness stories. And Jesus ignores the affront to his identity. He doesn't say, who are you saying if to? But he answers where life, real life, originates from. It's God. It takes more than bread to really live. So these things that God's people learned over 40 years is related to humility. God tested their hearts. God caused hunger to see if they might trust God as the provider. And Jesus' answers from Scripture, from the wisdom gained from 40 years in the wilderness, is what he shares with the devil. Now, in the second scene, they go up from stones and they go to a high place. And here the devil offers to give Jesus all the glory and authority of all the kingdoms in the world. There is a conditional if. To get instant power and to get instant honor, Jesus must worship the devil. He could avoid suffering. He could avoid waiting. He could avoid rejection and death and get this instant authority and praise that comes with all the allegiance of the kingdoms of the world's powers. Now, does the devil really have this power? The devil does have power. Uh, the devil has power over those who've surrendered themselves to him. So he can influence those who are already 
given to him. And this condition, I believe, is something that the devil could follow through on. The power of the devil is a power over those who've given their allegiance and their mental capacity to him. Many leaders do take the easy route to power. They dictate and demand a following. How many leaders would worship, and you can fill in the blank here, in order to win the next election? How many leaders would bow down and worship, fill in the blank here, in order to secure their dream career or to get the promotion? The question for Jesus is how exactly he's going to be the son of God. Will he be king right now? Will he take the easy power that's offered to him in the moment by the devil? And Jesus doesn't bother, again, to self-justify his identity. He doesn't say, but I already am the son of God. Didn't you hear what God said just a little while ago? His answer comes from these stories in the wilderness. This time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Fear God, worship God, and serve him alone. This quote reminds them that God is the one who brought them up from slavery, that God is the one whose name that they should act in. So rather than grasping on to the power that's offered to him, we look to God and we serve the power of God. Now, there's a big difference. We don't use God's name for power, but we trust God's leading and we follow God's power. Well, those are the first two scenes. The third and the final temptation that we learn about is the devil showing real powers of separation. He works to separate Jesus from God and to separate Jesus from his identity. He attempts not only just to question this identity of if you are the son of God, but to unravel the very meaning of how Jesus acts as the son of God. Do you know what I mean? Like those who are really good at, at following the letter of the rule and adjusting it to fit their ever-changing circumstances. In this third one, the devil adjusts, he improvises. The devil's skill at separation shows in his adapted technique. He sees Jesus' use of scripture in the first two temptations. And so the devil uses scripture. We've moved from stones to kingdoms and now to the pinnacle, the highest point of the Jerusalem temple. And the accuser invites Jesus to leap from the pinnacle of the temple. Now, this seems odd, but the devil's reasoning is, according to scripture, in Psalm 91, God commands his angels to care for Jesus. And the challenge is, if, there's that word again, if you are the son of God, then jump. Nothing's gonna happen. Well, what's going on with this one? Again, the temptation is to prove his sonship, to prove that he's divinity, and at this time to do it by an amazing deed, a miraculous act, to leap and to let angels save him. There would be thousands of witnesses at the temple. People would see definitively his identity. Again, Jesus responds with scripture taken from the wilderness. Jesus says, don't put God to the test. The third thing the Israelites learn is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, just a few verses down. And it comes when they beg God for water. They quarrel with their leader and they test their leader asking for a drink. 
They doubt that God was really among them. And this challenge to do something miraculous is like striking a rock to get water. Again, Jesus answers with scripture and Satan leaves. Challenge to make bread. A challenge for all the kingdom's powers and authority to be his in an instant. And the, chower, and the challenge to do an amazing trick, a feat that would definitively make people believe that he's the son of God. So what? So what? How does all of this story help an outsider have any interest in Jesus? I've got a few things. Maybe the last one's the most important, but, but first, Jesus was tested. As the Son of God, Jesus was willingly led to testing. He chose not to use superpowers for himself, like a video game cheat code. Jesus embraced the limitations of being human, being bound to a specific body in a specific place in a specific time meant he was fixed in history. And God is in some way forever tied to human history, inextricably connected to his own creation. That's wild. The primary confrontation was over Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Not just the title, but how Jesus would be the Son of God. And Jesus didn't relent to using personal power or tricks to prove his identity. Jesus did not use his design power in order to perform something at the request of the devil, even to satisfy his own hunger and to prove his own identity as the Son of God. Instead, Jesus pointed to the strength of God, using scripture and showing the path of submission to the will of God. Real life is not about bread, but beyond simple physical sustenance. For God to be revealed in any other way would have destroyed the very identity of God. To pursue physical answers to this spiritual assault, whether bread for hunger or immediate authority and glory, or even an amazing sign, is to really be pursuing God in the wrong manner, showing God in a weaker form. Okay, so Jesus was tempted. But, but second, his temptations compare to our own temptations. Jesus' temptation experience provides a construct for us humans to face the difficulties in our lives, framing our actions by our identity in God. Jesus was tempted to feed his own physical desires and cravings. He was tempted to take the quick path to authority and position and instant praise. And he was tempted to conjure up a magical performance in the presence of crowds that would be irrefutable proof. The path that Jesus took to be baptized, to be identified as the Son of God, filled with the Spirit and tested, is a path that we travel to. Even when Jesus temptations, we can identify with Jesus. While empty of food and lacking rest and physical reserves, this did not empty him of the Spirit. God's Spirit provided the sustenance to endure the testing. The Spirit remains. While questions continue still today about Jesus' identity, seeing Jesus' approach to these challenges is far different than any superhero 
modeling God's restraint for our benefit. Today, even as we are full of the Spirit, this does not keep us from being led by the Spirit into wilderness temptations. Yet we follow Jesus' example, his example of pointing to God's strength. So let me state clearly one, one main point, a summary point about Jesus that I think applies to both insiders and outsiders. It may seem strange, but Jesus being attacked by the accuser with the question, if you are the Son of God, is a question that's used to attack us as well. Now think about this. The power of evil causes us to doubt our identity as God's children. We don't know who we are. We try to prove who we are all the time by strength or wit or intellect or influence. And Jesus didn't defend himself, justify himself, or recount how God chose him. Instead, he received his identity from God and he lived in that identity. Now we are, all of us, insiders and outsiders, children of God. And we too have an opportunity to receive this identity as children of God and live as children of God. The fundamental attack upon every human being is that you are not a child of God. Look at what you've done. Look at who you are. Look at who you're not. Look at all your mistakes. You're nothing. You're not worthy. Have you heard these voices before? That fundamental temptation is true for all humans, to believe that we are not children of God. We are tempted to live as sons and daughters of anything and everything else, to be a daughter of desire, to be a son of pleasure, to be one given to authority and position, wanting to prove people who we are. We do get to choose who we'll be. And when we choose to be disconnected from God, we will discover and we will feel the absence of God, lifelessness and almost like a dead existence. Really and truly, if God judges us based simply on what we believe about God, then we're screwed. At some point, each of us is wrong. From the most careful outsider to the most careful insider, we can't get our beliefs right about God. There's going to be something we're wrong about. So instead of focusing on just what we believe about God, very important, but instead of just focusing there, we should focus on what God believes and what God says about us, about all of us. What God knows and believes is this, that God made you as his child, that God loves you as his child, and that God wants to live with you. The temptation not to be God's child leaves us alone, figuring out whose child we're going to be. We're all serving someone, but what kind of human do we wish to be? Well, we all may feel like outsiders to God. God has granted to each one of us insider status. You're God's child. God made you, God loves you, and God wants to live in you. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for everyone listening, wherever they are. Years from now, here in the physical space of the First Christian Church building or out on the road, God, would you please be present to each one of us? Thank you for calling us your children. And we thank you through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit as one God now and forever.